Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Today, we are going to conclude our exploration of the three parables that we find in this chapter. So let me quickly recap so that we make sure we're all on the same page. One day, Jesus was teaching. We don't know exactly where he was. We assume from the setting that he was outdoors. A crowd had gathered around him, and that crowd consisted, according to the text, of two groups of distinct people. One group is referred to as the sinners, and the other group is made up of self-righteous, very outwardly religious people, such as the scribes and the Pharisees. The religious individuals were offended by the fact that Jesus was welcoming wicked people to him so that he might teach them. So what did these people do? The religious grumbled against those that they viewed to be sinners. These three parables in Luke chapter 15 are being told for the benefit of all of those in his presence. And in fact, Jesus was telling that parable for the good of all people who would ever read it in the book of Luke. However, these words were particularly directed at the Pharisees. The father in the parable had two sons, and those two sons represent the two groups of people who were listening in. By speaking of the prodigal son, Jesus was displaying why the tax collectors and sinners were welcomed. It's because God's arms are opened wide for all who repent and believe. But now Jesus is going to shift his focus onto those who are standing in the back. Those people who are on the outside of that retaining wall with their arms in their sleeves and their shoulders back and their chin held high, looking down their nose at the Savior. And he says to them these words. So as I read the text this morning, please do your best to put yourself in the shoes of those Pharisees and scribes who are hearing this story being directed at them. Please follow along now as I read, starting in Luke chapter 15, verse 25. This is God's word. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the way that your word presents truth to us in this text. We ask, Father, that today as we encircle the word of God, that you would enliven our hearts and enlighten our minds. Give us the ability to understand and put into practice all that we are hearing. And I pray that there would be no hint of older brother thinking in our congregation. There would be no hint of this legalistic perspective in our hearts. Father, please purify us, transform us, correct us today, we pray. And I pray, Lord, for all of those people who are weary from the weak, who are carrying with them so much weight of all of the pressures surrounding them. Father, I God, God, I pray that you would just help us to navigate this morning's sermon with a focus on your word that cannot be distracted by anything as we hunger and thirst for your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. If you grew up with siblings, then you get it. How many of you had a brother or sister in the household when you were 
being raised. Practically everybody. And praise God for that. But you know how it goes. One of the most obvious ways that our sin nature begins to blossom is in our relationship with those people who are closest to us. In particular, with brothers, there's always a little bit of a competition between them that can quickly boil over into something more. In the family that we are observing in this parable, there's a little bit more than just a competition between them. Let's put ourselves into the shoes of this older brother for a moment. One morning, this older brother, he wakes up early. He goes out to the field, as the text says. He was working the fields. And so we imagine that he works tirelessly. He puts in the effort. He puts in the energy. He is soaked from head to toe with sweat and dirt and perhaps all sorts of manure. So he's walking back filthy from a day's labor. And as he makes his way home over that familiar path, his stomach starts to growl. It, it begins to growl so loudly, being that he hasn't eaten for 12 hours, that you could hear it 10 feet away from him. He makes his way down that path, and then he begins to hear something unusual. There's a commotion. He gets a little closer, and he tunes his ear, and he realizes people are singing. There's, there's a celebration. There's dancing. And as he crests that hill, he looks down and he sees all of the neighbors have been invited to his home and they're all celebrating and rejoicing while he has been working. They've been drumming up a party and he's confused by this whole thing. And before he even gets there, he smells what's going on. And he, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's that distinct scent of barbecue. You might be in your house and somebody 10 blocks away is having a barbecue and you smell it and you're just wishing that you were invited knowing... That's incredible. Well, he smells what's going on. He realizes there's a feast being prepared. So he stops one of the servants and he says to them, what is going on down there? And when he hears that this celebration is for his brother, he is beside himself with anger. He makes it all the way down to the gate, but he cannot bring himself to go in. He spent every day of the last several years being furious with his younger brother. The brother was an embarrassment to him. So the older brother is angry about the way that the family land had been divided and sold and that the money was given to his younger brother and he received that inheritance early and then he was offended that while he was faithfully over, over all of this property, his brother had gone and gallivanted around the world. Now there are two main issues here that we see with the older brother. First, we see in him a radical overestimation of his own wisdom. He says to the father, look. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody where they approached you and they started off the conversation with the word look? If that has happened to you, then you know that they are either attempting to point your physical eyes to something, look, or they are attempting to point your mind to something. Do you see what he is doing here? By saying, look, the older brother is indicating that he thinks that he knows or understands something that the father does not. He is now planning to inform his father of all of the logical reasons why the father has made a huge mistake. This son, this brother, views himself as wiser and more reasonable than the father. In the Jewish culture, children were never to address their parents this way. It would have been greatly shameful to present himself with this correct uh, this abrupt correction. His choice of vocabulary here reveals his tenor of his voice as well as the disdain that's within his heart. He viewed the love of the father as weakness and foolishness and he did so because he overestimated his own wisdom. 
but he also does so because he overestimates his own works. Notice how he does this. He claims that he should be accepted and adored by the Father for two reasons. He says, these many years I have served you, that's one, and I never disobeyed your command, that's two. He is basing his relationship with the Father on merit. I have earned my place with you, Father. I deserve your affection. He presents his worthiness by highlighting all of the things that he has done but also all of the things he has not done. First, consider what he says about the things he has done. The son says, I have served you. This word serve is the word literally for servant. I have been a servant to you. I have done the hard work for you. In a similar way, the Pharisees and scribes viewed their relationship to God through the lens of merit. If you were to ask them, why does God accept you? They would have probably responded with a long litany of all of the ways that they had followed the law to the letter. I tithe, I attend services, I fast, blah, 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 blah. This is what I do, therefore God must love me. Consider the Apostle Paul. Recently, I preached from Philippians 3. Do you remember what he said? He spoke about his perspective of salvation before he was actually saved. And he viewed his own works to be of great value. And in that passage, he says that as According to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. He had lived such an outwardly moral lifestyle that nobody could point out any flaw. He was a good person. The older brother here, this older son, and the Pharisees represented by him, they have lots of company. There are many people just like this. You know what? Everyone thinks they are a good person. Everyone that I have ever met believes that their own level of effort and purity are the standard by which God will judge. But the father does not love the son based upon whether or not he has earned it. The brother also takes a stand here by overestimating his obedience to the father. He points out all the things that he has not done. He essentially argues that he has never disobeyed. Parents, you should laugh at this statement. He says, I've always done everything that you've asked. I've never once in my entire life disobeyed you. Now, here's the thing. I bet you that all of the Pharisees, all of them who were standing in the back, who had children, heard that line and scoffed at it a little bit. Well, that's an exaggeration. That's, that's an overestimation of his own goodness. Of course, children sin. Every child disobeys. Every single child that has ever lived has been disobedient except one. Jesus Christ is the only one who ever flawlessly honored and respected and submitted to his parents in every way that God requires. Even the best of men are men at best, even when they are young. But these Pharisees who are scoffing at this claim made by the brother are ignoring the fact that they themselves think they have somehow obeyed every one of God's commands. Do you see how bizarre that is? Let me just put it into perspective. In other words, according to their mindset, the Pharisees viewed a parent's standard for their child to be a higher bar than God's standard for us. A child can never reach that, but I have reached God's requirements. Now, I find it strange, but you've probably heard this, and I've heard it many times, that when you speak to a friend or family member or colleague about Jesus, their response to you is something like this. 
I'm a good person. I've never killed anyone. Has anyone ever said that to you? My response is always this. Whoa, good, good. I am thankful for that because if you said the opposite, I would be a little bit concerned. But do you really think that that's the one rule that God is afraid you might break? Do you see how ridiculous it is? It's like they think there is one standard that God requires, not to kill someone. The logical conclusion of that thinking is that God has only specific rules, and as long as those are not broken, then we're fine. But they ignore all of the other things that God has set out in his word. The problem is that people create their own standards for what they view to be good and acceptable before God. They approach his commands kind of like a buffet where they say, I want some of this and I'd reject some of that. They just go to whatever is naturally appealing to them. When I go to the Chinese buffet on Hempstead Turnpike, I am not going to go to the salad bar section. I go to the other section because I prefer that section. That's how we approach the commands of the Lord. But we learn from the scriptures that we are required to follow after everything that the Lord teaches. And we learn from the scriptures that there is no one good, no, not one. All have turned away to their own way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We find those quotes in Romans chapter 3. So what standard was the older brother living by? It was a standard of comparison. He was comparing himself to his brother. This son of yours came home, he said who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. The standard that the older brother is living by is to avoid being like, or at least being uh, in the same reputation of the younger brother. He viewed himself as being morally superior in every way. There's another parable that Jesus shared that aligns very much with this one. There were two men that went to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other one was a tax collector. And when they were going to pray, the tax collector could not even look up. He was so filled with shame over the sin in his life and he just pleaded with God for mercy. He recognized that he was unworthy of God's love. But the Pharisee, when he prayed, he said, God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector. Do not underestimate God's holiness and do not overestimate your own. Imagine here the most vile and despicable person that you have ever met. The most disgusting person that has done the most disturbing and horrendous sins imaginable. Think of that person in your mind. Now realize that you are much more like that person than you are like Jesus Christ. The older brother overestimated his wisdom and he overestimated his works. He thought that his way was better than the father's way and that his works were the requirement for him to receive love. Are you like the older brother? Have you overestimated yourself? Have you imagined that you are somehow going to be received by God because of your works? There is only one ticket to the eternal celebration of heaven. And that is the genuine faith that we can have in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who died for sinners like you and me. God's love for us is never based on our works. If our salvation depended on all that we could do to get there, then all of us would be condemned to an eternity in hell. No one perfectly follows the law but Christ himself. No one would ever be saved if those were the conditions. Our salvation is solely dependent upon the grace of our loving God. The love of God is a costly gift, freely given. But when you live your life based on the incorrect notion that you can earn God's love, 
then you're going to think that he deserves or is required or owes it to you. We see that that attitude is present in the older brother when he says, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now I want to zoom in on this for a minute. First of all, you'll notice that the desire of the older brother's heart was to party just not with his father. He wanted exactly the same thing that the younger brother wanted, which was to gain some level of inheritance, albeit that his expectations were notably smaller. He wanted a gift from his father so that he could leave his home and celebrate with his friends. What's the difference here? What's the difference between him and the prodigal? The words of the younger brother, or the words of the older brother betray the fact that he is just as self-centered as the younger brother. He just has manners, just like the Pharisees. They have manners, but they're just as vile and wicked as everyone else. The whole key to this parable is found in that little phrase, he refused to go in. He didn't run to a far country, but he is just as much outside of the father's house as the younger brother had been. He hasn't displayed rebellion so loudly as the other brother, but his rejection of his father is just as genuine. His refusal to celebrate revealed the fact that he was just as lost as his brother had been. Jesus is telling this story to Pharisees and to scribes that needed to come in. Do you see the love of Jesus? He's saying, just come in. They were on the outside, both literally and figuratively. And when we see Jesus making this call, he lovingly reveals to them just how foolish they're being. He is graciously revealing their hearts and he is presenting them with a clear sign that they are welcome. Just come. Join in these sinners. You are one of them. Be with me. In this story, it was the older brother who looked good on the outside, but who was just as estranged from his father as the son who had gone away. Ironically, it is also the son who thought he was good, who revealed that his heart was indeed wicked. He was unwilling to forgive. He was egotistical. He was arrogant. He was self-righteous. These are all things that even the Pharisees could look at and say were problematic. But this story, interestingly, ends on a cliffhanger. We don't know what happened between the older son and the father. All we know is this. We know that Jesus says that the brother was invited to come in. He was given opportunity to enter into a right relationship with his brother and his father. And I can imagine Jesus concluding the story, intentionally leaving off the ending and staring for several moments into the eyes of those Pharisees in the back, piercing with his gaze saying, what are you going to do? The ball is in your court. The invitation has been made. Just come in. Or will they continue on in the back, grumbling against Jesus and those who follow him? Will they be found or will they remain lost? So often we see the Pharisees operating in the gospels as the bad guys. They are the bad guys in the story so much of the time. They are the antagonists who are always angry at Jesus. But I want to show you the story of one Pharisee and how the Lord worked in his life. A man who may have very well been there to hear this very parable. He might have been one of those people standing in the back with his arms in his sleeves. A man named Nicodemus. Now, you probably know this man from his appearance in John chapter 3. He is the man that Jesus is talking to when he shares the most famous Bible verse of all time, John 3.16. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but he was curious about Jesus. He was interested in the miracles and in the teachings. So what does he do? 
He comes to Jesus, but he is not willing to risk his reputation. He did not want anyone to know about his interest in the Savior, so he comes to Jesus by night. He was still seeking the approval of the other rulers, so he comes under the cover of darkness. Jesus shared with Nicodemus about the process of salvation and told him that he must be born again. And immediately when this takes place, Nicodemus scoffs at that concept and he even makes a semi-crass joke about going back into the mother's womb and being physically born a second time, only this time as an adult. He was both ignorant and insolent. In that conversation, we see that Nicodemus overestimated his own wisdom and that Nicodemus overestimated his own works. But Jesus lovingly and patiently explained to him that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit and a product of faith. John does not record the conclusion of that conversation for us either. He simply jumps right into the next historical event in Jesus' ministry. And like the older brother, we are left to speculate about the outcome of his soul. That is until chapter 7 of John. At the end of John 7, the Pharisees are discussing the growing Jesus problem in their community. And they realize that they are losing their loyal followers to this rabbi from Nazareth. So, so they hate him. They hate his power. They hate, hate, hate his teaching. They hate his tactics. Simply put, they hate everything about him. So they sent a few temple guards. These are not Romans. These are Jewish guards who worked for them in the temple. And they sent them to go arrest Jesus. But when the guards got there, they started listening to Jesus. And they began to hear his teaching and his words. And they said to themselves, we can't arrest this guy. And so they returned empty-handed. And when they did come back to the Pharisees, they were asked why they had not done their jobs. And they simply said these words, no one ever spoke like this man. At this point, the Pharisees accused the guards of being deceived and claimed that they, they the Pharisees, have the intellectual high ground here and that obviously if we would have gone and arrested them, we would have done our jobs. But then our old friend Nicodemus pipes up and he asks a question. He says, does our law judge a man without first hearing and learning what he does? Now it seems from this question that Nicodemus is still mulling over the words of Jesus. It seems that he hasn't fully bought in yet, but he's still on the fence. He's interested. He, he recognizes God's power working through miracles. He can appreciate the teachings, but he's still living as a Pharisee by the Pharisaical code. Now, Nicodemus drops off the pages again for a long while, and we don't know much about his spiritual journey. But what we do know is this, that when Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night and taken before the courts, Nicodemus was not present. Perhaps this was because he was thought to be a sympathizer of Jesus and because they were concerned that he may throw the court into a tizzy. They didn't invite him to be part of it. Or perhaps it's because he was already committed to following Jesus and he knew that this trial was unfair. So he boycotted the vote by refusing to even attend and join in their reindeer games. But even though he wasn't present there, good old St. Nicholas does show up again once more. This good St. Nicodemus, he comes in when Jesus died and his body was given over to Joseph of Arimathea to bury him in a nearby tomb. John informs us that up to this point, Joseph of Arimathea had kept his faith secret because of, he feared the Jews. But now Joseph goes public and he asks on the record for the rights to bury the body of Jesus. And Joseph was not alone in this task. He was joined by Nicodemus. 
The man who was ashamed to meet Jesus in the day is willing to risk his entire reputation by now getting Jesus' body and showing loyalty to him in his death. John 19.39 says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, and as is the burial custom of the Jews. Merry early Christmas, Nicodemus unwittingly fulfilled what was foretold in prophecy by the wise men that he would be embalmed with myrrh at his death. One thing to pay attention to here is the cost associated with this display of affection. In those days, there were no banks. They didn't exist. So when somebody had a large sum of money, instead of keeping it in the form of coins, they would often make a pricely purchase. They would buy something expensive and they would keep it because they knew that would retain its value and it would be more difficult for somebody to steal. So oftentimes they would purchase expensive things, perhaps things for their own burial. So this was a way that a king would be buried. So he purchased this perhaps as a way to protect his investment, perhaps for his own burial. Either way, it was incredibly costly. The estimated value of this burial gift in terms of modern currency is roughly $200,000. And that does not compare to the social cost that Nicodemus paid here. By siding with Jesus, Nicodemus had effectively signed his resignation from the Pharisee party. He would never again be welcomed after honoring this man that the religious rulers had just put to death. It is evident that his self-righteous skeptic attitude eventually turned into trust and faith in Jesus Christ. So what's my point? Why in the world take such an extended excursus to examine the biography of this individual who seems so obscure in our Bibles? It's because of this. I want you to see that Jesus came to save both types of people. He came for the younger brother types who sinned loudly, whose rebellion is excessive, and he also came to save those who are like the older brother, who sin in socially acceptable ways. He came to save, quote-unquote, good people. You know all sorts of people around your neighborhood and in your life who are these kinds of people, those who are generous, those who are good neighbors, that coworker who helped you on your first day, who made sure that you got your feet in the door and who made sure that when you made those mistakes, they were corrected without the boss finding out so that you would be fired. He made sure that you got everything in order and were able to keep your job successfully. It's that nice relative who always has gone above and beyond to financially assist you to make sure that you can make it. It is that person in your life who always asks, how are you doing? And they really mean it. It's that guy who comes to church in order to appease his wife. He loves her. He doesn't want to be here, but he does so because he cares about her and her interests. And then the person who returned your lost cell phone or wallet. That person is a nice, friendly, good outward person. The Bible teaches that there are no truly good people. If we are comparing ourselves to one another, we can look great. Competition is low, let's face it. But if we are, if we are comparing ourselves against the standard of our Lord Jesus Christ, our God in heaven, no one is good, no, not one. God alone is good, and we are all in desperate need of his grace. Nicodemus is proof that some of those Pharisees, at least one, this one, eventually trusted in Christ. But the question for you is this, are you an older brother? Are you trusting in your own good deeds as the basis of your relationship with God? Because if you are, then you are lost. Are you an outwardly good person, but your life is filled with hidden sin? 
Are you a morally decent human being who prides yourself on how much better you are than the next guy? If so, then you need to hear this invitation from the Father. Just come in. Just come in. Realize that you are just like all of the other sinners. Come in and celebrate the forgiveness that is received by our Father in heaven. The door to heaven is open. It has been unlocked by the blood of Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection have provided a way of salvation. So I say to you today, if you find yourself unsaved in this place, you are an older brother, or if you are a younger brother, I say to you, repent and trust in Jesus and you will be saved. But I also realize that the majority of people sitting here have already done this. They're in. You're living a life of relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I realize that most people here today are Christians. And to you, I want to share two very simple applications before we go. Now, I just want to say before I give you the first one, this. Um, I mentioned this also in the first service, and I was told I was correct. I felt like I had just said this recently, but I couldn't remember where. And being that I have spoken at a bunch of places, including back and forth between the other churches, I wasn't sure if I had said this to you guys or not. I couldn't find it in any of my previous notes. So apparently, I did say this at least to one service recently here at this church. But I think I'm going to say it again. Because I think that you need to hear it. And because I think uh, this is so con uh, significant from the text. And that is this. Never think little of your testimony. Now, I have spoken to people on many occasions who they hesitate to share their testimony because they don't think that it's flashy. They, they never went off the deep end. They were never drunkards or addicts or murderers, so they had never been arrested or got into fights. They, they had never cheated on their spouse. They assume, therefore, their testimony is somehow less valid or inferior to those who have a more bombastic story of transformation in their life. In other words, sometimes when an older brother gets saved, they, they find that their story is less emphatic than a younger brother who gets saved. But please listen. Salvation is a miracle. Regardless of how far you run, you're still separated from God. And no matter how moral you were, you still rebelled. And no matter how socially acceptable your sin was, you were an enemy of God. So no matter what your reputation was here on earth, well, that's a good guy. No matter what your reputation was here on earth, your reputation in heaven was that guy deserves hell. By the cross of Jesus Christ, we have been bought with a price. You were forgiven of your sins and adopted into his family. Your story is unique and your life is a trophy of grace. So never be ashamed to share for any reason how you have been redeemed. The word says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And finally, my second application today is this. Don't slide back into older brother tendencies. It can be really easy to shift our focus into an older brother mindset. It manifests itself in the way that we look at other people. Looks at the way we look at people who are on the outside and those who are here in the room with us today. It, it manifests itself by the way we see unbelievers and we say to ourselves, ugh, God would never save a person like that. Now I guarantee you would not say that out loud. But I also guarantee that you have thought that in your mind. You find a person who to you is morally vile and unacceptable. You find somebody who is living a lifestyle that you find to be putrid. And you say, God, he would never save a person like that. That is an older brother tendency. Or perhaps you're looking around the room at people here at Redeeming Grace Fellowship and you realize somebody is caught in sin and you look down on them and you think little of them and you think highly of how great you are in your spiritual walk, that you have become so mature that you would never fall into something like that. Please understand that is an older brother tendency. 
There's an old saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. And nobody my age actually talks that way, so let me put it in modern language. Just to say, I would be just like them if God had not saved me. What makes you think that you are superior? Your sin was just as worthy of hell. We are not to view the lost or our other brothers and sisters with a sense of self-righteous superiority. Rather, we are to imitate our Savior and to see people with compassion like sheep without a shepherd. A friend of mine often says, we are in the world, but not of the world, but we are for the world. When you are offended by someone's sin, pray for them. If you have access to that person, share the gospel with them and avoid the temptation to fall back into the older brother judgmentalism that comes to, into our hearts so easily. So here we are. We're ready to conclude the greatest parable ever told. And I hope that at this point, you have come to a place of great understanding about what it means. But I much more so hope that you have come into contact with Jesus Christ himself, knowing that he is a good and faithful king, one who is like the good shepherd going after the lost sheep. He is like that woman who searched diligently for the coin. He is like this father figure who welcomes sinners home. And if you are a sinner now who has run from the Lord, I call on you to return, to repent, and to come into that celebration. And if you have been redeemed, I hope that this has given your heart great cause for celebration. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in all of these things, you would receive the honor and the glory and the praise. Lord, we know that you have sent your son to purchase a people for yourself that you have sent him to redeem and restore. We thank you, Lord, that you will again dwell with your people, as it says in Revelation 21. Father God, we delight in the idea, in the fact, in the hope of the future that we will one day reign with you and, and be with you and celebrate you and worship you for all of eternity. That we will never again even have the inclination to do anything other than what you have called us to do. Father God, I, I pray for that day to come quickly. Lord, I pray for those who know you here to be encouraged, that they would recognize that even now the celebration has already begun, that we have returned and therefore heaven rejoices. Father, help us every time we wake up to worship you, to rejoice in you, to, to re be reminded of the great grace that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray against any older brother tendencies that would sink into our hearts, anything that we might put into practice, any ways that we are currently functionally operating as we are superior to others. God, I pray that you would rip that away from us. Conform us into the image of your perfect son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.